morning, and good to see you here, especially if you're visiting and we haven't met. My name is Brian Habig. I'm one of the pastors here, and that was Jake Patton who was leading us in worship. But uh, if you're visiting, I'd love to meet you, but glad you're here today. We're, uh, we're wrapping up a series that we've been looking at this fall on the Ten Commandments, and we're getting to number 10 this morning. So uh, throughout this series, we've had short passages. We're just going to have one verse from the Ten Commandments, and then we're going to listen to an echo of it in the New Testament, which has happened with a lot of these commands. So Exodus 20 and Colossians 3. If you don't have a Bible this morning, you can just follow there in the bulletin. Um, you know, I've said this, I guess, just about every sermon, but I, I, I do want you to bear this in mind yet again, and if you haven't been here to maybe hear this for the first time, that the Ten Commandments are just, they're so well-known, they're so famous, shared by Jews and Christians, and you know, especially if you've grown up around the Bible or grown up around the church, then they've just, they've been on the wall somewhere or printed somewhere, and it can kind of feel like they've just always been here. They just kind of drop down and they've always been here. There was a time when there weren't the Ten Commandments. And at this particular point in redemptive history, God brings his people out of slavery in Egypt. And, and they couldn't save themselves. They, they were miserable. They had been there for hundreds of years. God raises up Moses, brings them out, and um, brings them into the wilderness to the base of this mountain, Mount Sinai. And when God manifests himself, it's so frightening that the people, um, they're not just frightened by what they see, they're, they're terrified by God's voice. And, you know, whereas before they were like, you know, we want to hear what God has to say. And then when he says, it terrified them. They said, Moses, you talk, to, you talk to him and then just tell us what he says and we'll do it. But when God gives the law and manifests himself, writes the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone, the Israelites are at the base of this mountain. And I want you to think again about who these people are and what they just came out of. They have come out of a context of hundreds of years of slavery. Uh, the people were in Egypt for 400 years. The United States is not even 250 years old yet. And so God is about to say to them, you know, your descendants are going to enter a land that I'm going to give to you. I'm going to, the promised land. You're going to leave this wilderness one day. Your, your children will have this promised land, and, and this may seem unimaginable to you right now. Coming out of slavery, going into the wilderness, but you're going to have homes. Uh, some of you will move into homes that you didn't build. You'll just occupy things already there for you. You'll step into vineyards that you didn't plant and cultivate. You'll, you'll get livestock, and then you'll, you'll breed livestock so that you have great possessions. This land will, will be plenty. He talks about that, you know, if you'll be faithful to me, if you'll turn to me, you'll be the lender, you'll not be the borrower. So that's what's ahead for them. And yet, before they even go in there, and while they're still in the wilderness, just coming out of slavery, what God puts at the end of the Ten Commandments is essentially this. Although this may not seem believable to you right now, you're going to get in this land and you're going to step into a house that you didn't have to build and then you're going to look at your neighbor's house and you're going to want his house. You're going to step into a vineyard that, you, that you've never owned land. You didn't even plant this. You'll step into it. It's ready for you to cultivate. And rather than say, thank you, God, for this vineyard, you're going to look at your neighbor's vineyard. 
and you're going to think, why can't I have that? This is a window into the human heart, and this is how the Ten Commandments end. Exodus 20, verse 17, and then from Colossians. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. From Colossians 3, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, as we have in weeks before this, we want to thank you again that you're the one that gave us these scriptures, and you breathed them out. You breathed out poems and historic accounts and letters and apocalyptic images and the law and these laws and this particular law. And once again, we want to, we want to pray with the psalmist that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I got to see a, an acquaintance of mine, a friend of mine, a few days ago, and he, he lives in Charlottesville, Virginia, and he mentioned that he has, uh, has gotten to know a man there that I, I had actually heard of this man. He's a landscape architect in Charlottesville, Virginia, and he just operates at sort of the, the highest threshold this is the kind of person who doesn't just help um, redo your yard, you know, or an office park, but like reimagine an entire landscape, you know, like thousands of acres of land, reconfigure it, change the habitat, just, uh, you know, long-term projects. So I um, kind of looked him up online, and I found a presentation he gave and watched it, and it was about his firm tackling the, really like the reimagining and re-implementation of a rainforest area in New Zealand. And it was on an island. And, and if, when you see the aerial pictures of these islands, you think, wow, that, that, that's not great farmland, but it had been made into farmland, wiped out a rainforest, which led to erosion, which wiped out wetlands. So it was like a back to square one. When he gave this presentation, they, the firm had been working on it for 12 years. Very interesting. But one of the photos that he showed, you know, the slides as he was talking, was... Um, an old black and white picture of when they first just started the, the deforestation, when they started logging this area. And it looked like photos that, that I've seen from American history. And like maybe some of you have seen uh, the Ken Burns series about the national parks. And in one of the installments, they show the, the Smoky Mountains. And they show what it looked like when logging hit the Great Smoky Mountains. And I mean, it went from virgin forests to looking like the moon. So when you tell these kind of stories about, you know, wow, the, the, the wiping out of an area of New Zealand or the wiping out of part of Tennessee, sometimes the way we tell those tales is like there was a, a business owner behind all that and he just hated nature. Okay, honestly, have you ever known anyone who hated nature? Like even the most urban city-dwelling person you know, have you ever known anybody that would say, yeah, I hate trees and flowers and I despise birds. 
And sunsets. I particularly hate sunsets. I mean, I've, unless you know Saruman, the wizard, personally. I, I, I don't know anybody that would, you know, say that or I think even really feel that. So, so then why would someone do it? Because it just, you know, the, the devastation of that kind of um, just pillaging of the land is awful. And I don't conclusively know the answer, but I would say from a biblical vantage point, here, here's, here's what I would suggest, is that whoever's behind that, the owner, they saw a mansion or a lifestyle or an acquisition, a level of wealth that someone had. They saw it and they wanted it. And they saw a business opportunity here as a means of getting that. So they did it. They didn't do it because they hated birds, I don't think. They didn't do it because they hate wetlands or they hate trees, they're against the trees. I think probably what happened was they had a picture of what they wanted and this was a means to get there. And that's something that's in every human heart. And I'm going to say this again in, in a second, but, but this just seems to come up over and over when we open up God's Word is that something that's true of us as fallen human beings is that we do what we do because we love what we love. And out of that, you could extrapolate, we do what we do because we want what we want. It's not an information problem most of the time. I just saw a quote by a guy named Derek Silvers who was very successful in the 90s with some startup stuff and very innovative guy. And he said, hey, if information, was, if information was the great answer, then we would all be billionaires and have flat abs. Like we've got the information that we need, but we do what we do because we love what we love and we want what we want. This command, right there at the end, you know, it's broached, God has broached the biggies, stealing adultery, lying, bowing down to false gods and idols, these biggies. And they're right at the end. Out of all the things he could have listed, number 10 is about wanting. Not even the action related to it yet, just wanting it. So let's, let's look at this and see what we see about ourselves. That, uh, that the final command is... is not about external actions, but internal wants. So let's look at it this way. The three points here. The diagnostics of coveting. The pattern of coveting. And then the insight of coveting. Okay? The diagnostics of coveting. The pattern of coveting. And then the insight of coveting. All right. First off, the diagnostics. And I want you to think about this almost... In a, in a medical sort of way. Like if you presented a strange bundle of symptoms and uh, your, your you know, normal doctor or general practitioner couldn't understand it and he sent you to a specialist and he or she really looks you over, hopefully they could do at least a couple of things. They could identify it, name it, and then help you understand the effects of it to figure out a treatment. All right, so let's, let's kind of try to do that with coveting. Let's, let's try to identify what is it and then what are the effects of it. Essentially what it is, is before we even talk at the level of doing something, before we're talking about an action that other people could see, it's a feeling and a desire. 
Uh, Here's what one Old Testament scholar said about the Hebrew term that we translate covet. He says, the emphasis of this Hebrew word falls on an emotion, which often leads to an accompanying action. The original command was directed to that desire, which included those intrigues, which led to acquiring the coveted object. So coveting is the want of it, the desire for it, and even the initial thoughts of, so how do I get there before you've even done it? That, that bundle of sensations and feelings is coveting. And, and we, we could even say this, coveting is a bad form of meditating, of meditation. And we've mentioned this before that like in the, the Bible talks about meditation, and I'm not so much thinking of like in the yoga position, transcendental meditation. Meditating is thinking on something until it affects you. And I'm using that word intentionally. That's the root of your affections, your feelings. Worry is a form of meditation. You think about it till it affects you, till you, till you feel differently and act differently. Anxiety is a kind of meditation. Coveting is bad meditation. It's wanting it and even beginning the process of how do I have that if I don't have that. That's coveting. All internal so far. Uh, What about the effects of it? And there's a lot of different ways to unpack this, but I would say maybe just a succinct way to say it is that coveting is a cancer on the two greatest commandments. And a lot of you know this. One time Jesus was asked by someone, what, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you knew the answer. And thank you, Holy Spirit, that you let it be recorded so it wasn't forgotten by the people that heard it and, and, and died with them. Here's the answer. Jesus said, he actually answered two. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the, according to Jesus Christ, the two greatest things that we must do are love and love. Love God and love your neighbor. Coveting attacks both of those. I mean, for our souls, it's, it's, it's like the cancer isn't just isolated on this part of the skin or in the pancreas or this bone. It's in the lymph nodes now. When you think about when someone, let's say they, in, in the days ahead, maybe they've already gotten it. They get the, the perfect Christmas card picture from their friends who, of course, have already mailed it which makes us biased against them already. So they're at the beach and they've got white, you know, they've all got open collar white shirts and khakis and they're perfect and they're happy and they could pay for this trip. And you look at it and, you know, there's just all kinds of ways to respond to that. It, it, it might be, well, why is she with, with him instead of with me? Or it can look like, why do they have great kids and I don't? Or why can they afford this and, and we can't and I can't? Now think about what that's attacking right off the bat because it's already placing you and me in an adversarial relationship with God because we're, whether we're saying it or not, what's implicit is 
why would you do that for them when you know that I want that? Why do they have that and I don't? But it's also implicitly saying, why do they have it? It's hard to give your heart over in love to someone else if you resent what they have and you want it instead of them. Coveting is a cancer on the two greatest commandments. What's the pattern of coveting? And I've really got to give credit to uh, a writer that lives just north of here, Melissa Kruger. She's written, I think, several books, and her husband is president of a seminary uh, in Charlotte. But Melissa Kruger wrote a piece on coveting, and I just, I'd never heard anybody uh, unpack it this way, and I think it's very helpful. She said, when she looks at coveting in biblical examples, there's a pattern that unfolds. And here's what you see. Someone will look at something, and then they'll desire it or covet it, and then they'll take it, and then there's a hiding. Let me give you just a few examples. The very first sin follows this pattern. Eve gets in a dialogue with the devil, with the serpent, and what's what's the uh, slant he takes on it is that God is withholding something from you that would be amazing for you. And he knows it would be amazing for you. He gets to have it, but you don't. But he's holding out on you. If you ate that fruit, you would have it. So, you know, God didn't say that you couldn't look at that tree. But then she looks at it in a different way. And it says that she she sees that it's desirable. And in the Hebrew, the word that we translate there for desirable has the exact same root as the word coveting in this command. She desires it. And she takes it, and she eats it, and she shares it with her husband. And then God shows up, and what do they do? They hide. A little later in the Old Testament, when, um, when the people of God did go into the promised land, and they start the conquest of Canaan, one of the cities that they went into early on, they were supposed to go in and just wipe it out. Don't take people, don't take stuff. The whole city is like a big burnt offering. Jericho, wipe the whole thing out, no loot. But a guy named Achan saw some clothing and some silver and gold. It says he saw it. In fact, this was how he described what he did. He said, I saw it and I coveted it. So I took it and I hid it in my tent. Because he knew they weren't supposed to have that. Maybe... Besides Eve, the most famous example, David. And we looked at him recently. When uh, it's kind of at the top of his game and Israel is out fighting its wars, he gets up off his couch and already we should kind of be going, uh, Israel's out fighting, other people are leading the military, you're on your couch. And he gets up and he walks on the roof and he, sees, he looks and sees a beautiful woman bathing. Now, it doesn't use the word, but it's obvious he desires her, and he takes her, and then he tries to hide it. And just think about your own life. I bet we could find that pattern in our own life even recently. So if that's the pattern, let's go back to the beginning and ask ourselves what I guess is the obvious question. What are you looking at that belongs to someone else? that you want. And, you know, as I looked at this command, 
it's just, rem- I feel like I'm just saying this ABC <laughs> alphabet basic thing, but it's just incredible how honest God is. How realistic God is. Carved on tablets of stone, he says this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Has there ever been a time where it's easier to look at someone else's spouse? And this can be anybody, you know? I mean, this can be if you're single. This can be if you're married. This can be if you're divorced. But all of us long for connection. All of us love, long to be loved. That's a good longing. That's a good desire. But do you know how easy it is to, let's say, get on the social media page, not even of the person that we start to look at, but maybe the spouses, just so I can look at pictures of them together so it doesn't look suspicious. And to look at someone else's wife, to look at someone else's husband, and it starts and it fuels it to think, Why is he with her? God, why would you let that happen? Why is she with him when you know how lonely I am? What are we looking at? Now, and I I didn't go back and fact check this, but I remember hearing uh, a news piece about the fact that at least one body of research said that in certain uh, social settings when an attractive woman walks into a room, she's looked over more by women than by men. Comparison. Her body. Why does she have that body and I don't have that body? Why why, why is she dressed that way and I'm not dressed that way? Why does she have him and I don't have him? What are we looking at? Because here's what God is saying. In his wisdom and in his love for real people as we actually are, you may think that because this is just going on in between your ears or on your insides, but I haven't acted on it, that all is well. And God is saying, this is like a cancer. And it's not just in this bone, and it's not just on this spot. If you, if you keep doing this, it will be the lymph nodes. It will attack your love for me. And it will attack your love for your neighbor. It's already started. And you're indulging it, thinking, well, I haven't done anything yet. You're not safe. Now, I think this this gets to the inside of coveting about, all right, let's go back. We do what we do because we love what we love, we do what we do because we desire what we desire. Now, there's an insight there. It sounds weird to say there's an insight through sin, but there is. And that is this. Desire is powerful to change what we do, to affect what we do. And as I've said, I've had Lewis on the brain. C.S. Lewis on the brain this fall, so let me read a famous one from C.S. Lewis. This is from The Weight of Glory, but, but he talks about our desires. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling, around, uh, fooling about with drink, 
and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us, like, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Now, think about this. Like, I think what some of us hear God's voice saying to us is, so you like college football. Well, quit it. You like being with your friends. Stop it. Don't like humor. Don't like music. Don't like work. Only like me. Is that what God is saying? Who made work and friendships and love and food. What is he saying? I made you with the ability to desire. But you're you're sinful. You're fallen. Your desires are out of whack. And it will hurt you. Your, orders ha- your, your desires have to be reordered. Now, w- when we started this series, something that we said, actually before we looked at the Ten Commandments, we looked at Jesus talking about the Ten Commandments. And I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill. Fulfill the law and the prophets. And, and uh, the New Testament says that Christ is the end of the law. He's like the destination that the law is headed to. And we talked about the fact that the law exposes us. It shows what we're really like. All right, let's finish where we started. You shall not covet anything of your neighbors. How does that expose us? Oh, man. Uh, Pretty devastatingly. In in, uh, the New Testament, in the book of Romans, which is like Paul's masterpiece about the gospel, he says in Romans chapter 7, you know, I didn't know what coveting was. And he quotes this command. He says, I didn't know what coveting was till I saw the command in the scriptures, do not covet. And then I just wanted to covet all the time. And I hope when people like us read that, we think, man, me too. And the point he's making is that the law, and this is so important to say this at the end of this series, the law does not have the power to change us. In fact, one of the things the law can do is stir up that rebellious thing in us to go, hmm, I hadn't thought of rebelling that way. But I will now. Do not covet. Well, so what does that look like? And now I want to covet. It exposes us. I, you know, it's interesting sometimes to, to be in a sort of a dry academic sort of a book or commentary and, and just you'll, you'll hit a sentence and think, man, that'll preach. Let me read you one that I hit. This is what an Old Testament scholar said about the 10th commandment. He says, quote, by setting the commandments in this light to include both desire and act, the life of total obedience seems suddenly remote, but thereby the true dimensions of the law are revealed. The life of total obedience seems suddenly remote, but thereby the true dimensions of the law are revealed. If you were here when I started the series, I told the story about uh, walking to lunch downtown with a guy. It's when I first moved to Greenville, and he said, you know, the problem with people now is they don't obey the Ten Commandments. Do you obey the Ten Commandments? As you hear what coveting is, do you feel confident about, yep, I'm right where I need to be? 
we need saving. I mean, when, when what redemptive history includes is God from the mountain manifesting his holiness, having to say to people, don't want somebody else's spouse. Don't want somebody else's ox or anything that's your neighbor's. That's pretty telling about who we are. Exposes us. Which should do what? Point us to someone who can help us. And here's the beautiful thing the New Testament says, is that Jesus Christ, you know, didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He not only lives out perfect desires. Jesus was full of desire. Not only live out perfect desire, but be treated like the people with the bad desires deserve to be treated. To take on himself the punishment for people who don't just covet, but what does Paul say? When you covet, you know what you, know what you are? You're an idolater. You've crafted a God who ought to do what you want. And since the real one didn't give me her or give me that, then maybe this false God will give it to me. That's what we're indulging when we covet. That Jesus, for them, for us, would be treated like people who do that so that we can be treated like what he deserves. So that God can look at us as if we are as righteous as Jesus. If you're sitting here and thinking, okay, I just don't know how to get there. Like, great, but I just, I don't, I'm just telling you, I don't desire Jesus like I desire sex. I don't desire Jesus like I desire food. I don't desire Jesus like I desire her body, their house, their obedient children. I just can't get there, even if it's all true. All right, if that's the case, here's what I would commend to you. Say that to God. Because Christ came for people like that, like us. Christ came for real sinners. But I also want to spur you on to take action. Not to, we can't save ourselves, but I want to spur you on to something. And so I was in by saying this. You know, um, does everybody here have like a nutrition friend? what I'm talking about? Do you know like the friend who's always forwarding you links about like this kind of kale, not that kind of kale, this kind of organic honey, not that kind of organic honey. You need to take this kind of K2 for your blood, not that kind of K. All right. Probably way back in olden times, that friend has said something to you or, or, or sent you something about, let's say, um, uh, fish oil. You know, if, if you would just take the fish oil, how many times do I have to go over this? Because it's like, it, it's good for your brain, and it's good for your skin, and it's good for your joints, and you know, on and on. You know, it it just does all these great things. If you would just take the fish oil, it does all these great things, just the fish oil. I, I am beginning to think, it, it just, as, as I look at the whole of Scripture, that saying thank you to God a lot for anything is like fish oil for our insides. Forget chicken soup for the soul. I think it's fish oil for the soul. 
Because, if, you know, if you're saying, look, I, I can't get there. I know for a fact that I don't like Jesus as much as I like X. Okay, well then, have, when's the last time you really told God, thank you for X? Like, there's some people in this room that would say, I'll be honest with you. Some people talk about, ugh, tomorrow's Monday, uh, Monday's coming. So, I mean, I'm not saying it's the majority, but some people in this room may feel like, I love Monday. I like working. I'm stoked. You ever told God that? Thanked him? Like some people actually love spreadsheets. You must pray for me. I don't understand them for the most part. Have you ever told him, I, I love working. I love sports. God, I love walking into that stadium with those friends in the fall. I love that kind of music. I love that funniest person in my life and how she makes me laugh. I love that you made the world where there's such a thing as compounding interest and it builds wealth. You thought of that. Thank you. And then here's what I would exhort you to do. As that warms your heart up, almost like as that primes the pump, is then take the next step and say this. I can't believe that somebody who likes all that stuff more than you wants to be with me. Thank you. you know, like in the, in the Gospel of Luke, when, when Jesus made this, he's in this room with people who are going to like abandon him later that night. And he says, I have earnestly desired to have this Passover with you. In the Greek, it sounds like he's almost saying, I've coveted the opportunity to be with you and have the Passover. Why would God earnestly desire and want people like us? Because he's amazing. He's love. He is a mighty Savior, and He's personal. When we thank Him for the things that we enjoy, that energize us, that put pep in our step, but ideally, when we can turn to Him and thank Him for that, do you know what's starting to happen? He's changing our desires. He's showing us that, you know what, like this old hymn that I grew up singing said, if you turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, the things of this world will grow strangely dim. And, and we all need that. So I want to pray that God will be doing that in our midst, that through the law he would keep turning us to Jesus, and he would reorder our desires. We all need it. Let's pray together. Father, that's our prayer. And we don't just pray it at the conclusion of a series of one church on one fall. We, we, we pray it for ourselves as people given your law. It's in our lives for the rest of our lives. That we won't try to get it to do something it can't do but it would be something that would expose us, 
and open us up and show us why we need a Savior and we can't save ourselves. And we would be taken to your Son and He would be our forgiveness and He would be our righteousness that you would change our desires. You are the great feast. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.